You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. The topic of self-pleasure is a part of today's conversation, which is why I can't think of a better sponsor for this episode than Lilo. Whilst we're on the topic of pleasure, did you know that May is International Masturbation Month? It just so happens that Lilo comes bringing a special treat for all our self-loving listeners. Use the code KATELILO at lilo.to forward slash LiloXKate. Pick a luxurious sex toy and get a free gift with every purchase. Are you ready to come along for the entire month? Today's conversation is all about medical and surgical menopause and the reason that I really, really wanted to have this is because after the second series, this is the topic that I had the most questions from people about, the most requests to have this conversation about and the conclusion that I came to was that that's because this just must not be happening at all, or that people really feel like if it is happening, it isn't happening sufficiently enough. So I have asked two incredible experts in this area, Dr. Hannah Short and Dr. Liz O'Riordan, who are both brilliant experts, hugely knowledgeable, but also have been through these experiences themselves, which makes it incredibly, incredibly valuable for patients and clinicians alike. So I would love if it's okay for you to both introduce yourselves. I, as I was just saying, would really like to hear why you both are really passionate about having these conversations as well and why you think they're so important. I'm Liz. I was a consultant breast surgeon and I spent my life treating women with breast cancer. And then when I was 40, I got breast cancer myself and I was suddenly thrown into a menopause with chemo and then again with tamoxifen And when my cancer came back, I had my ovaries out and was put on an aromatase inhibitor. And I realised what a huge impact menopause has on my patient's sex lives. And I never talked about it. I didn't think it was a problem. And suddenly I was desperate for help. And I now spend most of my time talking about how important sex is to try and help women understand there are ways to get it back when you can't have HRT and to try and help doctors and nurses start that conversation. Um. I'm Hannah. I'm, I'm a GP, but I've also done further training in menopause and premenstrual disorders. Um, I've also got personal experience of a premature surgical menopause because I was at 35. I had my ovaries removed and I had a hysterectomy because um, I've got a history of endometriosis and also a severe premenstrual disorder. So um, I, I used to get, you know, very, very extreme kind of PMS symptoms essentially um, that really affected my physical and my mental health so the combination of the two meant that um, ultimately surgical menopause was the only option for me Um, and being thrown into surgical menopause at a pretty early age I suppose it opened my eyes to the reality of of how we manage patients with menopause um, in the NHS and, and, and as medical professionals and although there, there are many issues with, I suppose, naturally menopausal women and the support they get, it's a whole new level when you get to induced menopause, so medical or surgical, and especially at a young age. Um, and that's kind of what drove, you know, put me into this place where I found myself working now. Um, and kind of, I suppose, part of sparks my passion. Um, I'd run a clinic of menopause and premenstrual disorders. And I think sex is one of the things that affects a lot of my patients, regardless of their age. So I see 
women in, in early menopause as you know as young as kind of early 20s but I see women in their 60s and 70s who are still experiencing problems due to the menopause and particularly on their sex life as well so it's a really important conversation to have. And that's an amazing place for us to start this isn't it because you're seeing people completely across the age range and that's because menopause whether it's natural, induced, surgical, medical has a huge psychological impact it isn't just a physical physiological process that we go through Mm -hmm. and do you think that that is different when menopause is induced rather than it happening naturally and I guess what one thing that is important to say is we can't it doesn't happen in a vacuum we know that for example as you're both describing with your own personal experiences, that it's happening probably alongside diagnoses or medications, life-changing information, decision-making. And I guess, you know, looking forward to your future and working out what what is best for you kind of in that moment or what is a, a choice or a decision that needs to be made or perhaps it doesn't feel like a choice, perhaps that choice is actually not really being given to you. So it's not happening in a vacuum, but do we, do you both feel that the impact of induced menopause is largely different to that of the natural declining menopause? I, I think it has, it is very, very different. And this is because, you know, when you get to around your age of 50, you're going to go into a natural menopause, you know, it's meant to happen. But when it's induced, it's not your choice. It is happening before your time and it is instant. You don't have that gradual two or three year decline. You wake up and think, bang, where's my sex drive gone? Where's my libido gone? And the guilt I felt of the damage I was doing to my relationship, because suddenly I was 40, I never wanted to have sex again. Nothing happened. I'd watch Fleabag, nothing happened. And that's instant and overnight, rather than, well, everyone tells off when they get to the 50s or 60s. And I think it is very, very different to how we deal with it. What do you think, Hannah? Yes, it's different. I mean, there are similarities, I suppose, I see in clinic. So I I think it's hard to say that one person could be more distressed than another because I've seen some people in their 60s or 50s, 60s with a natural menopause who are just as distressed mm. as somebody in their 20s or 30s. But it really depends on the context. Um, and um, yeah, but I think there's a whole another layer of complexity when it's an induced menopause and there's a, so many other things feeding into it. And as, as Liz said, it's not even like you're necessarily you know prepared for this. You, it's not something you're expecting to happen. You'll be put into an induced menopause. Um, of generally, it may be a life-saving um, procedure um, or it can be the result of other medical treatment that's necessary to improve your quality of life. And I think you can go in with that awareness. Um, I think there's a whole other layer of guilt in terms of you you worry about Mm. the impact it's going to have on your relationship anyway. But then you think, gosh, should I really be worrying about about sex when actually, um, you know, I've been saved by this life saving surgery or my quality of life is better. I'm not experiencing pain or the cancer has been removed or whatever it is that's brought you to that position. Um, and people find it very hard to talk about and often it isn't mentioned about in medical appointments which just makes things worse Um, you often feel guilty for complaining about it or bringing it up it's like we're not meant to talk about this we should be grateful to be alive Mm. yeah and it may I I think it's sometimes it's um, it's the thing that brings people to tears in in the consultation room like more than anything else and they Mm. and then they they feel guilty because they're like I know I should be grateful this is the kind of words that I hear in clinic quite a lot saying I should be grateful because you know I'm now cancer free or I'm in remission 
or the endometriosis has been removed. So I'm, you know, the, the, my pain is less, things like that. But but saying that I still, I have no libido um, and, you, you know, I'm in pain, you know, because of vaginal dryness, I don't know how to approach this. Um, and I just think that that just makes things 10 times worse. And especially the whole fertility issue as well, because that's tied up in the early menopause. Yeah. If I see a lot of women who've ended up um, with a you know, with POI, um, so it's not seen necessarily induced menopause, but that's premature menopause below the age of, of, of 40 and they're sometimes diagnosed with that um, during fertility treatment and then there's a whole other layer of this being um, you know they associated sex with fertility um, and then they find out that they're probably not going to conceive because they've got POI and that's a whole other level of, of, of guilt around it and they so yeah it's like just disconnecting sex from enjoyment and pleasure and stuff as well so mm. and that's something that I've heard people talk about a lot and I have done um I did a panel with Trekstock and that that was what people were saying is I feel like I've taken up so much of my doctor's time or I feel like I've taken up you know there's the next uh, the next patient that they need to save so I shouldn't be talking about sex it, it feels unnecessary you know the appointments and the doctor's time should be about health and managing symptoms and survival and being here and it feels almost trivial I think is the word that I feel people say a lot is it it yeah it's like be happy with everything that you've got and go forth and enjoy it but actually the enjoyment bit the enjoyment bit is a sex is quite a large part of that for lots of people that they feel as as you guys have described taken away from you yeah and I think that really rings home because as a doctor, you have so much information to go through in one appointment. You kind of think it's for you. And the patient comes in and you say, right, how are you? You go through your list of questions. And it's only at the end when you say anything you want to ask. And as a patient, you've sat in that waiting room. You know they're running an hour late. You don't want to take up any of their time. You think, I won't bother. I'll, I'll, I'll wait till next time. And it's really hard to change that dynamic and almost get doctors and nurses to say, right, what is bothering you first? So we can talk about that. Um, I've been there and not wanted to bring it up because I don't want to bother them. And I'm a consultant surgeon, seeing a consultant surgeon, and I'm still saying, I won't mention mm. it. And it's interesting, sex isn't even on that list of questions that you... No, it never has been. But I think you you, re- you realise it, don't even acutely, as, as like a, as a doctor yourself, you even when you're put in the patient position, you realise how, I don't know, it, There there is a, um, an imbalance in the power dynamics, you know, when you're in the room. Completely. And you do suddenly feel quite intimidated, even if you've got a caring doctor in front of you. Yeah. And I think actually sometimes coming from the medical background, you're aware of the pressure they're under, which probably as a medical professional makes it particularly hard because you're like, I don't want to bother them with this. I, I know they're busy and yeah. they've already, like you say, they've already helped enough. So um yeah, I think that that makes it really difficult, but it, it's yeah, it's it's just in, incredibly hard. There's so many different factors that make it difficult to bring up, but I don't think anybody should ever be embarrassed about it. But it's not always embarrassment. I think I think it is all the things you talked about. Well aware that your time is limited, um, worried about what the answer will be. Um, what if you don't get the support that that you you hope for? What if there is no solution? All of these things probably go through people's heads, and yeah, mm. and it's an intensifying of sex being left out of the conversation in general culture and then we kind of funnel it down into these different pockets one of which is when it changes which is linked to menopause in a really strong way and I think we see almost that kind of intensifying of 
those feelings, which is I shouldn't talk about it. You know, if the natural level of I shouldn't talk about it is already there, yeah, then we're going to see that even more in situations where we perhaps feel under pressure or that we we shouldn't be asking. Mm-hmm. And one thing I wanted to ask was when we're using terms like surgical menopause or induced menopause, medical menopause, do they all mean the same thing? Because often they're used interchangeably, but I know that that doesn't necessarily always um, tie up in real life. No, I mean, induced um, just means that it's been, it's been brought about, and I mm-hmm. suppose, ne- by external factors. Um, so that can be either via medication or as a, secondary, as a result of something like radiotherapy um, or, or surgery. So surgical menopause just apply, um, means that the ovaries have been removed. So surgical and medical aren't aren't the same thing but sometimes people use medical to mean anything that's come about as a result of a procedure or medication by a doctor so but if being technical I suppose induced covers both really medical and surgical Um, medical or chemical menopause normally refers to um, you know medications that can be used to switch off ovarian function but you can be said to have a medical menopause as a result of damage to the ovaries by other medical procedures whether that's radiotherapy or or as a kind of secondary effect of of, um, medications as well like chemo Um, it is confusing so yeah chemo exactly things like that so um I suppose surgical menopause is, like I say, it's the removal of the ovaries. Medical menopause encompasses everything else that is a result, direct result of or indirect result of medical treatments. Mm. And I just think it's always useful because for me, and I've had quite a lot of um, kind of gynecological health issues that I've touched on before, is when you're <laughs> tapping into Dr. Google, the world's most unreliable doctor, <laughs> those terms, you're kind of noticing or one professional might have used one term and another professional might have used another term yeah it's quite helpful to sometimes understand if you're going completely down the wrong path or if it's being used correctly or not correctly and I think language is something that is so wrapped up in appointments and treatments and conditions and something that we don't always get right or what one person will say one thing and another person will say something else and that in itself adds to the anxiety around what's going on. Um, but Liz, you just said that chemo, for example, might be yeah. a reason for this. And I, I guess what are the reasons that, or the more common reasons, I know you guys have both touched on some of them, that people might be going through medical menopause? So with breast cancer treatment, um, if you have chemotherapy, it affects the ovaries because they're fast-growing cells. And it can reduce your fertility by about 10 years. And if you have chemo, under the age of 35, your ovaries probably won't start working again. But we also give women um, a drug called Zolodex, which switches off the ovaries to lower the levels of estrogen. So that would be an induced menopause. And it's not permanent. We'll often do it during chemo to save someone's ovaries, hoping they'll wake up afterwards. So yeah, there are so many different types. Mm. And that's because it's controlling hormones during... Yeah, so you if you've got if you've got breast cancer that's sensitive to estrogen, the treatment to stop it coming back reduces your level of estrogen. And if you're premenopausal, that means either switching off the ovaries with a drug like Zolodex to stop them working, or we give a drug called tamoxifen, which stops breast cells um, absorbing estrogen in the body. But if they've got quite a high risk of recurrence, we will use both. So you switch off the ovaries. Um, the hope is that if women were young and wanted to have children in the future, you could stop the Zolodex and their ovaries would still be working. But the closer you are to 40, the lower the risk of that. 
And for some women, we will make them, we will suggest they have their ovaries removed just to really reduce that risk of it coming back as much as possible. Mm. And tamoxifen is taken for a long time, kind of post-treatment as well, isn't it? Yeah. So you're on drugs for five to 10 years to reduce that risk of recurrence. So a woman may go through a menopause at 20, be on the drugs for 10 years until she's 30. Her ovaries recover a little bit and then she hits her own natural menopause. So all of this stuff is not linear in any way shape or form is it and I think that's no that's the sense that I've got doing the research and listening to you guys speak is it's this layering of different aspects whether that's Mm. diagnosis treatment long-term effects ongoing treatment and then menopause is on top of or in all of that or something that a snap decision might be made about and it is sometimes that you have to choose in order to preserve life or preserve health or survive. And yeah, that might be something that people can't psychologically perhaps deal with at the time because there's so much else going on, but actually that mm. comes back or is something that starts to be processed a bit further down the line. Yeah. And I, th- I think in, yeah. not in when, when people are in induced menopause for non-cancer related reasons as well, it's something that there's, there's the whole, I think, the impact on sex life and just the impact of early menopause or surgical menopause or medical menopause in general is, is kind of left out of the conversation or... Uh, you know, we might talk about as doctors, like the long term risk to your health of, of having lower estrogen levels, like we need to be careful about your bone health and your heart health, and you might have a few hot flushes. And, um, you know, some people will be able to take HRT and, and you know, that that can be very helpful, but it's not necessarily going to mitigate everything. But I mean, I see a lot of women who've had, say, surgical or medical menopause for um, endometriosis or for severe premenstrual disorders like PMDD. And I think they're so desperate to get relief from their symptoms that they kind of like, oh, yeah, 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 don't I'll, I'll worry about that, the sex and all of that stuff later. Or it doesn't even enter their mind because they're so consumed by their current symptoms mm. um, that for them, it feels like anything would be better. And it's only afterwards that they realise the, the actually profound impact that, that, those, that, those, that menopause can have on their health and even though it may be the right decision for them ultimately um, they're still left with um, kind of side effects and results of, of the intervention that they hadn't expected anticipated hadn't prepared for and then that's where the guilt comes in again because it's it's like well I wanted to have this surgery or this medical treatment and yet I still I find myself and I'm still not in full health or that you know I, I, I'm not living life as well as I as I'd hoped to be um but I mean, although it's not the same as life saving, really, in the same way that cancer treatment is, um, I yeah, it, it's. I think their symptoms can be so bad that they're not really thinking about the impact, and actually, maybe their their doctors aren't fully informing patients as well. And sex definitely is one of the things that will probably not be mentioned. Um, <laughs> and there feels like such an unfairness with that, doesn't it? Because you know, especially conditions like endometriosis, which, as you're saying, we're not talking about them being life saving, but they are life debilitating you know the amount of women that I speak to Mm. with endometriosis who it impact it touches every molecule of their life in some way shape or form and they're invisible conditions Mm -hmm. and I think that's a huge part of it because it you know if someone can't work because the pain is so bad but it they don't appear there is no um visual injury no and they can still dress in a suggestive flirty sexy manner you put the makeup on you can wear all the clothes Mm. and look the part but there's nothing going on 
And I guess you must assume after the treatment, then your life will be fabulous again. And no one says, actually, it's going to be very, very different. I think, I mean, I was personally naive when I had my surgical menopause because I was so desperate to feel better than I had been before before the surgery. And and to be honest, it has been helpful for me. Um, But I I hadn't really even thought about uh, you know some, some of the longer term impacts of, of the lack of hormones and, and everything else that went with having the surgery um I, I was like oh I'll be fine I mean I'm in a lucky position unlike Liz that I can take HRT but I assumed oh take everything out add some hormones back in and I'll and I said effectively I think I naively thought I'll I'll be the same as a woman who's got her own natural ovaries but just but without the pain that came with the endometriosis and the fluctuations that came with the the severe PMS um, and obviously it wasn't like that at all. It's not been like that. And it, it's a chronic condition that needs to be managed. It's n- I'm never going to be a woman who's got her ovaries in the same way that Liz isn't. It's you you are in an estrogen deficient state. Um, and I mean, our ovaries do more than just give us estrogen. <laughs> and we still we need more research into that. But it's um, it, it's really kind of complex. But I mean, I do feel quite naive that I, I thought, oh, well, it'll be quite straightforward. I'll just I'll top up my estrogen and I'll be fine. <laughs> mm. And that's as a that's as a yeah. doctor. <laughs> and I had one of the best gynecologists in terms of the most informed gynecologists. In, in the, in, and it's not I'm not saying, blaming him because he did try and inform me. But you can't. You, you can't provide that lived experience no. and, and and the doctor sitting there and telling you this is what's going to happen is very different from actually living that reality I think mm. so and I was just thinking that you saying I felt quite naive and I'm thinking you're so informed in comparison to the general population of mm. even just how our bodies and our hormones work yeah that it's you know for for the average person without the training without the without the more advanced level of understanding how confusing that must be. And I think HRT is something that has to be a part of this conversation. And we know that breast cancer, for example, is one of the main kind of reasons that people might not be able to take HRT. But are there any yeah. others? And how does HRT tie into all of this? Because obviously, it does play a role in sex as well. Um, yeah, I mean, a- a- H- HRT, if you have an, an early induced menopause then under the age of 45 particularly um, it's recommended for prevention of long-term health um, impact so you know reducing your risk of osteoporosis heart disease dementia all of these things it's it's quite important it's important if you're able to take it you should be able to take it um but also for quality of life um including um quality you know of, of your sex life um i mean hrt there's two main types there's um the systemic hrt so which you basically is generally estrogen and if you've still got um a uterus then you need to have progesterone as well to protect the lining of the womb because if you just give estrogen alone you can get a buildup of the lining of the womb pre-cancerous changes so you need both estrogen and progesterone um and you 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 take those either it's like tablet or a patch gel um, or spray through the skin or in my case i've got an estrogen implant because i don't absorb well through the skin and i got migraines when i took tablets but um that's a whole other issue um 
Um, so you get your estrogen in that, in, in that way. Um, but there's also something called local estrogen, um, which is just estrogen um, treatments that you can use vaginally. Um, and importantly, I'm sure Liz will probably talk more about this as well, this can be used with breast cancer treatments. There can still be some resistance in medical quarters, but it's, we know that it's it's safe. It's not going to impact um, on breast cancer treatment. It's not going to you know affect chances of recurrence or, and, and recovery and things like that. So local estrogen can help with symptoms to do with vaginal dryness um bladder pain um in discomfort during sex um, like that and that can be given alone or in conjunction with the systemic hrt except i'll do the breast cancer bit um if your cancer is sensitive to estrogen we really don't want you to have anything that gives you estrogen because it stops the tablets working um and there was a lot of controversy in the media at the minute um a lot of people do think that hrt is good and it will prevent you know the bone trauma and the heart disease but there are studies that have shown it can increase your risk of recurrence now it's personal choice and some women that have a really severe especially psychiatric side effects may need hrt but every doctor would really every breast surgeon would strongly counsel against it however as hannah said vaginal estrogen is safe whether you're taking tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor, it is safe. You should have it as much as you need. And it made a massive difference, but not just sex. I'm a cyclist and I was getting labial skin tears after an hour in the saddle. I was used to riding five or six hours. And the difference that made together with the lube is just incredible. But a lot of GPs and doctors don't know. And I've had women who were doctors with breast cancer being referred from their gynecologist to their breast surgeon to their GP because everyone is too scared to give them vaginal estrogen. So it's raising awareness to anyone listening out there that you can ask. But I wanted to go back and say, I've done quite a few podcasts about sex and it's what is sex? Does it actually have to be physical penetration? And I think it's it's the whole foreplay side of it. So when I, I had chemo first and I had a palpable lump in my breast and I'd lost my hair. My husband and I thought we'd be intimate and we're in bed and suddenly it was like, do you touch my breast? But there's a cancer there. I don't want to, but do I? And do I touch your head? Do I not? And having those conversations in the middle is completely the wrong idea. But no one told us. It was patients who said, talk about this beforehand and know what you're comfortable with and what you're not. Tiny little things that can have a huge impact on what sex is to you. Massively, because it changes your relationship with your body as soon as you have any kind of diagnosis or if you have a condition where there's yeah. high levels of pain or discomfort or distress. And I think that mm. it's a huge part of it, but also often when people have been through lots of medicalized processes, there is a detaching in order to get through it. And yeah, I, for example, had a, a whole series of procedures and there was no way that I could be fully in the moment and focusing on what was going on because I just needed to get through it. And there was a, you know, a splitting. And then yeah. the idea is you kind of walk back through your front door and you just put it all back together. And that is really difficult for people because we always go into survival mode, which is right, get this done. That will, you know, help. I need to get that done. Yeah. And then we can't just flip a switch to get back into the headspace of, feeling like we're nurturing our body again or experiencing pleasure from our body again or wanting to have a relationship with our body and then a lot of us feel angry at our bodies when we find out it's not working mm -hmm. the way we want to and yeah if we have our relationship with our bodies ourselves then how do we also let a partner then feed into that as well yeah and you may say, so again, don't touch my breast, it's betrayed me. Don't touch there, it's a scar. But your partner wants to show you that they love all of you. And it's that, 
I don't want you to do that, but I know you really want to. How do you find that line to move forward? It can be really, really hard. So something I've heard lots of women um, who've been through breast cancer say is, it's a part of my body that used to be sexy or used to be very sensitive or used to make me feel womanly is a phrase that I've heard a lot and used to play a big part in my sex life. Mm. And now it doesn't work. So from a lot of surgery, the breast skin can be numb, you can lose nipple sensation, you can lose the erectile function of the nipple, radiotherapy can make it feel hard and lumpy. It's just a piece of skin on your chest. And it's really hard if they were a particularly a strong erogenous zone for you and that's gone. It's like, oh. I think there's a lot of disconnection between your body and yeah. sex when, when you're in induced menopause, especially if you've, there've been quite a lot of trauma beforehand. So mm. even when we're not, not talking about in the cancer space, but... Um, Women, again, who've had things like endometriosis or adenomyosis or other, you know, recurrent gynae procedures and stuff, they associate a lot of that, you know, past their body really with pain or with anxiety, medical appointments. So they almost disconnect from it. And I think that's almost as much of a problem as... Um, the hormone side of it. And Mm. I think going back to the hormone replacement therapy side of things, yes, that can help Certainly with the local oestrogen um, um, in, in terms of making things more comfortable, because obviously a lot of that area becomes can become quite dry and irritated with the lack of oestrogen. So that can certainly help if, if there's a physical aspect, if it is that it, it's it's. You know, you know, the lack of lubrication is is, is part of the problem, um, but it's it's, it's sponta- lack, lack of spontaneous desire and other things are, are obviously what upsets a lot of people. And there's often no quick fix because it's often multifactorial, um, and it, and it's not as simple as just adding back the hormones. Um, there can be a reduced amount of blood flow because of various procedures or treatments, um, things like that. But it, again, it's the psychological um, factors as well that come into it hugely, and I think. Um, it, I find it sometimes quite hard to talk mm. about it in, in with with patients because I think sometimes patients are expecting well if I just if they're able to take HRT and they haven't got history of hormone dependent cancer then um, I think they think well can I have some more estrogen or maybe we can even try testosterone therapy and testosterone is is you know mentioned in the nice guidelines on menopause as we can prescribe that even though it's off license to help with um, low libido. And for some people, it can make a huge difference, but for some people, it has no impact. And um, I think like, you can almost hit, feel the, the the disappointment when I have to explain this to patients that this may not work. We can try something for three to six months. But there's other things like psychosexual counselling, sometimes things like pelvic floor physiotherapy. There's so many things we yeah. can do. Though. I think that's what's really important to say. But in terms of menopause and HRT, it's certainly not it's not a cure-all if you're able to take it um it may be part of the answer for some people um and I I really like um, Emily Nagowski's book I think you've had her on your podcast haven't you so I recommend her book come as you are to everybody because again she talks a little bit about the hormone side of it and actually that's generally just a small part of what's going on it's everything else that factors in as well so and we know there are still 80 year olds having fantastic sex you've gone through the menopause who aren't on hrt so we know hormones aren't a be all and end all mm. it comes from it's your brain really isn't it i mean i think the number one thing is to try yeah, and correct completely. any physical problems so if it is to do if it's if it's physical pain whether that's vaginismus to do with the vaginal dryness or tight pelvic floor muscles we need to address those because obviously and everyone should be using lube yeah i was going to say we're talking about comfort here i mean obviously it's not the absolute be all and end all savior but my god it makes a difference no (laughs) i thought lube was something that you did if you were having dirty sex because i was a good girl you think you don't use lube and actually it should be messy it should be fun and it's the right lube no no glycerins no chemicals because they upset the 
balance of the vagina. Mm. It's amazing the stuff that you find in them. Um, I I swear by um, Yes Lubricant and Sutil, mm-hmm. um, water and silicone base. It's amazing the difference they make, the fun you can have. Why aren't we telling girls at 16, yeah. look, you should have this yeah. with you at all times? Seriously, it's meant to be fun. Warm it up first, because cold loop can be a bit of a shock to the system. <laughs> but it makes it, but there's still quite a lot of resistance. I find that. So I always ask my mm. patients, do you use lubrication? But and there's almost like, oh, I don't need to, or, oh, no, I haven't. And when, when people yes. say, oh, I don't need to, it's almost like, almost like mm. they're slightly offended that I've asked. And it's, again, yeah. it's trying to kind of normalise its use and say that it can be. It's not that you don't get wet enough. It's that it can make you, it can make it much more pleasurable. Yeah. And almost every, if every doctor, I always had a sex bag in their clinic of dilators and lube and little vibrators and tiny things that patients could just look at and explore to then use as a way of talking and saying this is normal yeah exactly it's about yeah it's certainly about normalizing the conversation and that's really really what we need to do i mean i'm always handing out lovely you know leaflets on yes or or talking about satile i've got a little bullet vibrator that i have in the the clinic to show and and saying that even in in some hospital trusts in this country now some patients are being given bullet or clitoral bullet vibrators to improve the pelvic health um because if you can improve blood flow to the area that increases lubrication it can help relax vaginal muscles um but Mm. it's it's just it's, we just need to normalize this um because like you were saying Liz a lot of people assume oh you know lube like it's something dirty or something that it um and it and I just I yeah. spend so much time just saying how important it is that we use the right kind of lubrication or and or vaginal moisturizers um, when you're not having sex to keep the area hydrated and comfortable um and it can be more pleasurable for partners as well yeah. um but again but like using the right kind is yes. so important I mean KY jelly should not be used um because it's damaging <laughs> no and you can also take you can take your own lube with you when you have your smears done you can take yes or sutil and ask them to use it yeah. Um, yeah, I'm such a huge fan of yeah. yes, and I always recommend it. And also the thing that I say to people is, if you are someone who's already been having difficulties or struggles, don't try anything with a tingle sensation, a flavour, anything like that, because the last oh God, thing no. I want to do is add to feelings of discomfort or yeah, um, cause any kind of challenges. We are trying to keep this as simple as possible. And yes, organics, they're brilliant. They're all natural, all organic, but they are... I mean, they are just really high quality. And um, Sam at um, Joy Divine always recommends Suitors yeah, as well. Yeah, she's excellent. I always refer mm. people to her website and to, to, to the sexual health blog, which is a sexual health and pleasure blog, because she's got articles on how to use yeah. lube, how to use moisturisers, um, sex after cancer. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a really, really good resource. Unfortunately, it seems to be blocked in a lot of hospitals. They seem to think you're looking at a pornographic site, which is... Yeah, I know. It's yeah. like we're not looking at porn, we're trying to help patients. But one thing I wanted to talk about briefly was the impact that the menopause and the lack of sex has on your partners. Mm. I've had a lot of women say it felt like marital rape the first time they tried to have sex after breast cancer treatment because they didn't realise how bad it would be and when do you stop halfway through, do you carry on? And a lot of women have said their partners, um, their male partners just can't get an erection because they are so scared of hurting. And they don't want to initiate it because they're scared of hurting it or it's not the right time. So especially if the man was the dominant person in initiating sex and they stop, that can make you feel even less attractive. And it's almost you need to help the patient and their partner. And if they're single, how can you help them bring this up on a first date? You know, fancy a one night stand. Mm-hmm. By the way, I come with a bag of tricks. 
it's not treating the patient as a whole. Absolutely. And I think that there is, you know, there's one other side of this, which is that all of the conversations, the research, the stuff that's written is all about heterosexual couples. Yes. So one big thing that we see across the board when it comes to healthcare is all the research is very heteronormative. Everything's written um, in very gendered ways. And there are, so therefore there is an assumption about the type of sex that's been having, which is commonly referred to PIV, penis and vagina. Yes. Now, lots of people yeah. aren't in a relationship where there's both a penis and a vagina. And so we see that there's this nope. part of the conversation, but is you know a much wider problem. But how can we reframe it and say to patients, okay, well, you know, one type of sex or one part of your sex life might not currently be available to you, but there are plenty of other ways for you to be intimate, be sensual, be sexual, explore each other, have fun, reconnect and build up back to that if you want that to continue to be a part of your sex life. And we see that, for example, for patients who have had prostate cancer surgery, that it might no longer be able to be a part of their sex lives. But those couples still have great sex lives and relationships. And I think even just that reframing of the idea of how do we help you to do what makes you feel good rather than feeling like you should be doing something. You frame that so beautifully. And I think giving doctors stock phrases like exactly what you just said, just to help us get that language out without being embarrassed or stuttering. What do you think, Hannah? No, I agree. I mean, it's something that I was looking at because I've written a book with a um, a colleague on on early menopause and 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 POI, um, and we d- dedicated a whole chapter to sex. And like, it made me realise there's still a lot more, you know, <laughs> a lot I still need to kind of learn. We need to open up that that conversation. Um, and I think it's 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 just we're just letting all our patients know that sex doesn't necessarily mean penetrative sex in terms of vaginal sex um and so that's one easy easier way i think to do it and not making any assumptions about what people are doing because that's only part of it anyway even in a heterosexual relationship um but it was quite interesting going kind of like the thinking things you know oral sex you know a lot of people find pleasure from from that that and that's not going to be as threatening for a lot of people as having kind of you know penetrative vaginal sex um and but again that can be uncomfortable if you still if you're still kind of struggling with some dryness you're not getting appropriate treatment so things like lube and stuff can kind of still help with that um I don't know it's something I'm still trying to figure out into the how best we approach these conversations because like you say you don't want to make assumptions where you don't want to put your foot in it um but I think it's about having just open questions when you're asking patients like how how is sex not assuming mm. what kind of sex they're having who their partner is or or just asking has your That's sex it. life changed for you is there anything you'd like to improve yeah um um, because I mean I don't you know I, I might be a menopause specialist but I'm not I'm not an expert in sex or sexual health um, and so sometimes I do feel slightly out of my comfort zone I can think about my own experiences but even when I can't extrapolate my own experiences of menopause or sex after menopause to anybody else um, my relationship is probably not like anybody else's we're all individuals and everybody's relationship looks different mm. Um and what might be difficult, say, for me, might wouldn't be difficult for somebody else. So I think it's the open questions are really important and asking the patient, it goes back to what Liz said earlier, what, what's important for you? What's changed for you? Yeah. What do you want to talk about? Um, but I like yeah. that question. I love sex. those questions. You just real time. <laughs> I was already thinking I need to go back and um, 
re-go over this bit and write them down because I loved that they were so open and so non-assumptive. And I'd say to patients, go in with a list of questions to ask your doctor and have, I want to talk about my sex life at the top. So before the doctor says anything, say, I want to talk about these in this appointment. And then you that's a really good way of trying to get at the top of that conversation. I want to talk about my sex life. Then they can ask what concerns you. And then you can say whatever it is that you want rather than saying, oh, it's penetrative sex or going down that old cliche. But mm. it's... I was going to ask about that. I was going to say how it feels like a natural segue into this question, which is how do... What can we say to patients which might be helpful if they're going to appointments, if they're going through this process? And Liz, I just guess you just said they're having a list of questions that they're going in with. But obviously lots of people might not feel comfortable even doing that. I mean, that still takes the confidence to go in and be like, right, these are my questions. Yes. This is what I want to focus on. But how can we empower people to even if it's just thinking about it and leaving it for an appointment or waiting for the next one or just having it in their mind, how can we help people to feel a bit more comfortable or to feel a bit more confident in voicing these concerns? I don't I don't think I've got a particularly easy answer because I think, like you say, it's quite, it's hard, isn't it? Um, I think for a lot of people, even if they're otherwise relatively confident, to, because you feel very vulnerable and exposed and... Um, I suppose the the only thing I would like to reassure people is that um, most doctors, I wish I could say 100%, most doctors are not going to be embarrassed if you're asking about that because they just think this is part of your healthcare. I think sometimes doctors' reticence to bring up sex is because they're worried they won't necessarily have the tools to help or they may not be specialist in that area. Um, I was about but I think to most say that. doctors genuinely do care and want to help and are not going to be embarrassed or thrown if you ask something. And if, if you have a good compassionate doctor even if they can't answer your question they may be able to direct you to someone who can or they may be able to say I'll look into this and get back to you yeah um I was going to say you could maybe say is there someone mm -hmm. I could talk to about my sex life because you may not want to talk to your doctor but that is giving the doctor a chance to say oh I don't know let me go and investigate or no you can talk to me yeah that's a really good way actually because I was just thinking because I found even when I directly ask patients about it um sometimes they will come up and say I'm so glad you asked because I didn't know how to bring it up yeah and for those patients I think that's really hard because they can they can go in there with every intention and then suddenly feel intimidated or look at the clock and think oh my time's running out I can't bring it up now um, I mean, we all find it hard talking about sex with our partners, <laughs> let alone our GP or the doctor mm. who's treated us or seen inside us. It is, it's, it's a weird relationship we have, isn't it, with the people treating us? Well, there's something about permission, isn't there? So if the doctor puts it on the table, the patient yes. doesn't necessarily have to take it, but they know it's up on there. And I always think it's funny, and there's always kind of memes about it and things, aren't there, of how we get undressed behind the curtain and we take everything off behind the curtain, but then our doctor comes in or our gynecologist comes in and we have our legs kind of spread in the stirrups and we kind of cover our modesty for the yeah. talking bit. <laughs> when it gets to the appointment, everything changes. And I think in a way, there's some kind of similarity with that, isn't there? It's like, okay, we can talk about all of this stuff, but mm. not this bit. So how, I mean, do we think that even just equipping doctors with the questions that you just shared, Hannah, yeah. is a huge change. I think so. I think you just by having an open question, I think, can make a huge difference. And like I say, it gives the patient permission to say whatever. And there's, like I say, there's no assumption. I think that's one way to, to start. Um, 
I think yeah, it, it's 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 so. I think the whole topic is it shouldn't be so complex, but it does feel. I think because of all the factors that are in there. But I think that's no. a good starting place. And I say even if we we need to talk about this more as medical professionals. Um, but I mean, there's such a long way to go there. <laughs> I think even starting yeah. I think for me, I want I want to make sure that one person on every medical team is asking every patient about their sex life and telling them how treatment will impact. And it's not just adults; it's kids. You know, kids who are asthmatic or who are diabetic, what are they going to do if they have a hypo or they're asthmatic during sex? They have a scar on their face that's going to affect oral sex in the future. They've got a stoma. They've got a colostomy. People with anal fissures, everything we do as a doctor can impact someone's sex life. But because it's not related to the treatment, we don't talk about it. And I'd love it if someone, whether it's a nurse or a doctor or whoever it is, made sure that sex was covered as part of our treatment for that patient. And it comes down to, so for me, quality of care. I thought it was about doing the right thing at the right time, but it's actually the patient experience. And sex is a basic human need. And we need to make sure that people get their lives back when we say goodbye. Mm. Sex with Cancer is the most amazing initiative and they are doing some great work mm. in this space. But again, it's it's the first steps, isn't it? It's the start. It's It, it feels like what we're yeah. talking about is changing the system in some way. Yeah. You've got to ask the question and you've got to know how to help patients. And patients have to be brave and just say, mm. who can I talk to about my sex life? Because if mm. you don't ask, nothing will change. I mean, even sometimes I've got patients to write stuff down if they're too embarrassed. I mean, I wish people didn't feel like that, but that could be another thing yeah. if they if they don't feel able to ask the question. And there's also so many reasons, aren't there, why people don't feel able mm. to verbalise it or what you know, whatever. But I, uh, yeah, I think you should just sometimes writing things down. It's often patients will email me their question, those kind of questions, rather than talk directly. But if I have found that when I ask, most people will want to talk about it. Um, it's very occasionally people say oh no that's not an issue for me and then that's great um, but for most people it is at least part of the issue and often it's a significant part of the issue because it's connected with their the rest of their life like they have their, their intimacy with their partner um, you know if they're in a relationship yeah. or if they're not they're so worried about how it will impact future relationships um, and yeah so we, we we desperately need to be talking about and like you say I'm with young people as well um, because I, I mean, I've I've met women who are saying that they're thinking of that if they should divorce their husbands because they say I'm not the person that he married, and their their yeah. partner can be there going, well, I'm not, I'm not, you know, the, you, it's not just about sex, but you know that there's, um, and that they're saying that they would never leave their partner, but you can sense this great sadness. I said the um, same to my husband. I want you to divorce me and marry a woman with two healthy breasts and a libido, because I never want to have sex again, and I'm forty, and it's not fair to do that to our relationship. It is so mm. common. And I think there's that sense of feeling like you've, it's not what you signed up for, I guess is what a lot of people describe. Exactly. But also what we see is when people are struggling with sex and we see this across the board, whether it's medical conditions, sexual dysfunctions, is when there's a difficulty with sex, we pull away from all types of intimacy, touch, that might lead to sex. So what people say is, I don't want to leave my partner on. Or yeah. I don't want to them to get the wrong idea yes. or them to think that it might lead to sex. Yeah, so there, what that. we do is we cut out being naked in bed together or we cut out hugging or we cut out kissing. And actually, I think that's the bit, rather than the sex itself, that 
can cause more relationship disruption for people. And I think if we even said to people, yeah, communicate with your partner about what's off the table currently and talk about what you could do, even if it's just holding hands on the sofas, people pull away from that because they think, okay, well, that would lead to hugging, which would lead to yeah. kissing, which would lead to touching, which would potentially lead to sex. So I won't even do step one because then we won't ever get there. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, because I think it, I think it's often the, the partners will often um, be missing the intimacy as much as the actual any sexual acts. It's about being close, and I you know you see I see patients who say they're living very separate lives, and one it can be made the partner doesn't want to hurt their that <laughs> you know that the person who's in in this you know mm. in the induced menopause, but you know especially if they've had pelvic surgery or, or something like that, or also say you know breast surgery. Um, and you're just not knowing what to do, what's allowable or, you know, or what they feel their partner would be happy with. Um, but both both partners can be feeling very lost, uh, misunderstood. Um, and I think, yeah, maintaining intimacy on any level is really is really, really important. Um, Almost going back to those dating kind of bases. And I never really knew what they were, but, you know, we're just clothes on, hugging today. The next week we might go, you know, below the top, just kind of. Yeah, take it right back to basics and just take physical sex off, penetrative sex off the table. I guess what I was hearing you say there as well is both partners might not want it to be that way and probably don't want it to be that way, but don't know how to have the conversation or how to do things differently. And we have this as a problem across the board with this linear model of sex that we have. But how do we also equip couples, if people are in relationships or patients who are single, to be able to say to new partners we need to do things differently or how can we adapt and adapt for now to see what works or what can we try because also what we are assuming is that these are couples that feel comfortable talking about this because some couples might have never talked about sex been together 15 years and it just never been a part of the conversation and they started having sex a certain way and that's how it's carried on until yeah this which is kind of a bomb in the middle of their intimate sex lives relationships now might have to start and that can for lots of people I suppose maybe feel even more terrifying than starting this conversation with a new partner yeah so I think maybe you listen to a podcast you see a tv episode you read a magazine article and asking your partner could we listen to this and talk about it that can be a really good way of using something else to help get that conversation going and just telling people that sex changes throughout your life what works in your 20 doesn't work when you're 50 have you tried this before let's have a bit of fun you know get a copy of the karma sutra again just realize your body changes throughout your life and it's okay that sex is different and to try new things and you don't do what you've always done because that's what we're taught at school it's like you have sex to make a baby and you don't realize that it's okay to change and to have fun and try things up and I think it's it's making sex mm. seem like a really bad thing to do. And I think this is one of the things, isn't it, is about adapting. And another thing that we haven't mentioned that lots of people report is a reduced sensitivity or a reduced ability to orgasm when they go through menopause or... Mm. Mm. Yeah, really common. And that's really common, isn't it, Hannah? Um, I mean, there's probably multiple kind of reasons. I think that is probably affected as partly an age-related thing, but it's more. It, it certainly is going to be more common, say, if you've had radiotherapy in the pelvic area, partly to do with the reduced blood flow to that area. And again, that's where things like use of a bullet vibrator or something like that, um, these things 
these things can be helpful. Um, but chemotherapy can affect it um, as well because it can damage nerve endings and you have these effects. So there's so many different things can that, that can affect, um, um, you know, that they re- the reduced sensation and everything as well. So you often need different sensation or more powerful or more stronger sensation to orgasm. Yeah. Mm. But what a lot, lot, lot of them I know, so they have no libido, but they can still orgasm. And when they orgasm, they remember how nice it is to orgasm. Mm. It's almost, if you masturbate every day, you will realise how nice it is and it's easier to get there. It's a great way to go off to sleep when you've got the night sweats. And it just makes you realise how good you can feel and get in touch with your own body as well to then let someone else come in. Mm. So it might be that you have to relearn how your body works because perhaps your body works a bit differently. And I interviewed yeah. Meg Matthews and her gynecologist said to her, the one thing you should not give up is masturbating because of the increased blood flow, oxygenation of tissue, yeah. but also that positive relationship with that part of your body and remembering that your body mm. can give you pleasure and that part of your body can give you pleasure and that that's a, a kind of gift to yourself. But I think that the reduced sensitivity thing was something that I wanted to bring up because if we discuss it and we say to people, okay, things have changed. And so what you might need to do is adapt and change with that instead of working against, which is I will do exactly what I've always done because that's what I've always done. Yeah. And getting the same result, which is a feeling disappointed or unsatisfied. Whereas actually if we say, okay, how can you work with this? It might be that you need to take a bit more time that you need um, to use lubricant, which you haven't done before or try a sex toy or that you might notice that having some kind of audio erotica makes you to feel more turned on and that helps you. Whatever that might look like is a way of us reframing the conversation, which is that change means the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great opener to say, right, this is your chance to go and explore new things because things are a bit different now. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, definitely. But I think your idea is if, if it's difficult to bring things up, I mean, obviously there are options like psychosexual counselling, then couples counselling, but I think that's not going to be open to everybody and not everybody will feel comfortable going down that route. But like I say, having, listening to a podcast or, you know, watching something that relates to the topic is, is a good way to, to kind of open open things up and get in, and start talking about it and not ignoring the, this fact, which is probably having an impact on both people. The other thing I wanted to say, which is probably re- quite relevant to a lot of patients who are, are kind of in menopause, especially if they can't take HRT, is the impact of other medications that may be prescribed. So things like the SSRIs or the antidepressants that can be prescribed for hot flushes in menopause can have a negative impact on sexual function. Mm. Um, and I and that, that can be quite difficult because there's no kind of real easy way around that. And, and if you're somebody who's struggling hugely with um, like vasomotor symptoms like the night sweats and the hot flushes and you need something to help with that and you can't take oestrogen whatever you're taking for that might say be negatively impacting sex life and it ends up being a bit of a I don't know benefits versus the side effects side of things really like it is it, it's so important I mean citalopram is great for helping hot flushes but I miss spooning I get so many night sweats there's suddenly that cuddling afterwards that just being curled up by my husband he gets two seconds and then right off hot flush go away it's the aftermath and the intimacy that can really be affected by the symptoms of the menopause as well yeah and again, your partner can feel like you're rejecting them because you're saying, no, go away. I don't want to cuddle afterwards. I think that's such a big part of this, isn't it? Because we can't untangle all of this. And I think that's what it does feel like for lots of people is, OK, so I have a symptom. So I take something to manage the symptom. But the side effect of the symptom means that it impacts another area of my life. Now, the other area of my life is impacting my 
mental health or my self-esteem and then I'm back at the beginning of the cycle yeah and we see this layering or this it's it's almost like a network of symptoms and side effects and difficulties but also that overarching sense of impact on self which has such a big part of you know our, our sex lives at the heart of that or how we feel about ourselves or how we feel sexy and that's something that lots of people say is you know having night sweats feeling kind of brain fog um experiencing pain you know none of this stuff is sexy or makes me feel no. good I think that's what I often say to patients when we have the conversation about whether HRT may help. And like I say, often it does, at least it can certainly make people feel more comfortable. But also it's the impact of HRT, for example, if you control the symptoms of menopause, is going to have a positive knock on effect with how you're feeling generally. And that that may be part of how it, what it can help in terms of improving your libido and stuff, because you're feeling better in yourself. And obviously, if you can't take HRT, other measures can you be done to, you know, to potentially help with things or although as I've just said you know some of the alternative medications may have knock-on negative effects as well it is so so you know um complex and everything is kind of interwoven um but certainly I I always say to women that to be honest most of um the the impact on libido is, is your brain almost switches that part off when you're trying to deal with everything else um, and so if you can, we can manage the other symptoms of menopause, improve how you're feeling generally, that will have a positive impact on, on, on your libido and, and your sex life going forwards. Um, because like I say, if you if you can't sleep, if you're sweating, you, you're hardly going to feel in the mood. <laughs> and so if you can't cuddle mm. your partner. Cause well, also, why would we desire something? Yeah. Why would we desire something that we're not enjoying? Why would we move towards something that's not giving us pleasure? Yeah. Why would we? Yeah. Why would we be motivated to have sex and we know that desire particularly really works in that way can I just I mean this is obviously it's slightly counter to everything we've been saying I mean for some people actually medical surgical menopause can have a positive impact on their quality of life they and and that especially if you've had a very painful um you know pelvic or gynae condition and if, if surgery for example has improved that and you no longer have pain if you struggled with heavy constant bleeding and that's gone um also some people are very worried about falling pregnant and had never wanted to fall pregnant and therefore they, they can feel relieved when they don't have to worry about that um so I do see some people who say their sex has got better so I don't want everybody to come away thinking it's the worst thing because yeah um I mean even you know, in my own personal situation, sex was so painful before surgery and it was better after surgery, but other other things were more negatively impacted. So I think it, it's important to kind of bear that in mind. Um, not everybody, ha it's not always going to be doom and gloom for everybody. And again, some people, um, I suppose, who, who've ended up in surgical or medical menopause for cancer may, or actually I've seen this in a few women who have um, kind of... Um, prophylactic surgery for BRCA mutation they mm. actually sometimes feel a sense of relief because they feel that they've made a decision that's put them more in control potentially of their future health and for them that has yeah. re relieved some burden and because they're feeling lighter in themselves yes they may be impacted by symptoms but actually they feel better um and that has a positive impact on their sex life yeah I think it's just it's not a one-way conversation but um yeah for most people menopause isn't doesn't improve their sex life but for some people it does mm. i think it's a hugely important part of the conversation because we know that there's no one size fits all to anything 
I mean, we still keep trying to find the one size, no. which is something that continues to baffle me. <laughs> um, <laughs> we we do, you know, the the thing that I think I feel like I say all the time is you have to work out what works for you and not kind of apply the, the should book to exactly how you're trying to run your life. But I think the other thing is, Liz, you were talking about partners experience earlier. And I know that lots of people that will be listening to mm. this will be thinking about that side of it. And I think it's a really nice way for us to also round off the conversation because whether we're talking about current partners or potential partners how can we you know feasibly lots of partners might be listening to this to gain some insights but how do we help to equip partners to know how to deal with surgical menopause or induced menopause that's such an important question and thank you for asking it so in in my book the complete guide to breast cancer i have a chapter about the side effects of menopause and many women have given it to their husbands to read Mm. so they understand it's not that their wives don't fancy them or they're not attracted to them anymore it is purely a consequence of the treatment they've had it's not the husband the partner's fault because they can often feel what's wrong with me and that's often helped a lot of partners understand what is actually happening Having that conversation and being really honest and saying, do you need help? Do you need to talk to your GP to see whether something like Viagra might just help get over your mental blocks? Because it's very hard. A lot of women have said it's hard to have sex if the man isn't fully erect. Again, this is me being heteronormative, sorry. But you often do need something to push against if you if it is a bit dry and comfortable. And almost saying, right, sex is important. We need to put it in the diary. And I know... Your partner may never know when you as a patient are ready, but you have to think, right, okay, it's been a couple of weeks. I'm going to put it in the diary. I'm going to start things. So it becomes a habit and just saying things are going to be different. I have a sex bag I take on holiday or not on holiday, I have in the house. It's got everything to hand saying you have this. It can be different. But just being, I think, being really open and honest and saying these are my needs. But what needs do you have? And if it is too painful for me to have sex, what can I do to make you feel good? And it's it's just that being really open and honest and adult and, and just saying, OK, what do we both need? How can we both help each other? I think that's really and again, masturbation, everybody masturbating all the time just to realise how good it is. So you get quicker at it because if it's been a long time, foreplay can be so awkward. If it's been months, what did we mm. used to do? We're in bed. Uh, OK, who puts what where? And it's kind of let's just have a week of mucking about on the sofa and, and making it part of the two of you together. Because it's not just about the woman, it's about the people she's with. And it's awkward and it's embarrassing, but you have to go there. There's this idea, it sounds like you're saying kind of be creative with it. And I think so many of us, we get into routines with our sex life, don't we? And Yeah. It's like races. Who can be the first to come? Who can be the last to come? Lie next to each other. Just that kind of stuff. Mm. So you're still being sexual together. And you're still having fun. So are the times when you know it's going to be painful, there's still ways you can connect. Do you think it's also reminding yourselves that you can be sexual? And I think, again, it, maybe it goes back to where we started the conversation, which is whether it's treatment or diagnosis or medications, is all of those things can be very desexualizing. And so finding ways for you to feel less desexualized or more sexy or more yeah. in touch with that, sexual sense of self are all positive things I think I lost my ability to flirt because I lost my long hair and I lost my cleavage and I didn't feel sexy and I didn't my clothes didn't fit me anymore after my mastectomy it's like how do you feel sexy how do you want to tell someone like a good old-fashioned snog on the sofa 
no one cares what you're wearing or how you look. <laughs> Something like that, just to remember that it's it's not about how you look or how you feel, it's how you connect with someone. I love that. I think that feels like the most amazing place to end this conversation. I mean, I honestly feel like we could talk for hours. I feel like we've just set to the surface to <laughs> follow up. But I would love you both to tell people where they can find you and find your books and your podcasts um, because I think that there's going to be a lot of people wanting to read and listen. Um, well, so, yeah, so um, I, I don't have a podcast, but Liz, Liz has a podcast. Um, and the, the book I've written with my friend and colleague, Mandy Leonhart, it's not, it's not due out actually until June, but it's the complete guide to POI and early menopause. Um, so we kind of talk about the acid, we say we've got a chapter dedicated to sex and also about things like fertility and, and, and issues related to that as well. Um, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Hannah Short. Um, I have got an Instagram account, but I don't really use it. <laughs> I, I keep meaning to kind of I mean, use that up. And I, my website's drhannahshort.co.uk. Um, it's in the process of being revamped. So it's not as I intend it to be in the next few months. <laughs> so you can find me on Twitter as at um, Liz underscore O'Riordan. I'm on Instagram as at O'Riordan Liz. And I do a lot of talks and lives about sex. And if you Google my name, you'll find loads of articles I've written about this. My website is liz.oreadon.co.uk and I'm about to do season two of my podcast called Don't Ignore the Elephant, where I talk about the stuff that no one talks about, like sex and death and body image. So have a listen and let me know how you think. I also wrote The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer, which does cover every single question you and your partner would ever want to know. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review.